Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 31. Last week, I wrapped up the Egyptian Second Intermediate Period and began the history of the New Kingdom. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing the New Kingdom, working through the first two Thutmoses and the female pharaoh, Queen Hatshepsut, essentially covering the years 1506 to 1458 BC. So let's get started. Thutmose I was the third pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, taking the throne in 1506 BC, so about 56 years before the Exodus. And for clarity, the date for the Exodus that I consistently use is about 1450 BC, and comes from Rabbinical Judaism, which dates the Exodus based on a passage in 1 Kings chapter 6. More on the other potential dates in a later episode. Back to Thutmose. Thutmose ascended to the throne upon the death of Amenhotep I, who is commonly believed was his father. His mother, though, was not Amenhotep's primary wife, but most likely a lesser wife. Thutmose's royal wife was Queen Amos, who was also probably his aunt, meaning his father's sister, or half-sister. She could also have been Thutmose's sister, or half-sister. We don't know, but what we do know was, it was a strange time, indeed. During Thutmose's almost 13-year reign, he sent military expeditions deep into Canaan and Nubia, pushing the borders of Egypt farther than any ruler before him. But it wasn't quite that easy and simple. Upon his coronation, Nubia rebelled against Egyptian rule. The newly crowned pharaoh took it upon himself to directly lead his troops up the Nile, where it's claimed he personally killed the Nubian king. After doing so, he ordered the Nubian king's body hung from the front of his ship, visible to all as he returned to Thebes. A couple of years later, he would again go to Nubia, but this time he had various canals along the Nile dredged to expedite the movement of his troops. This had the added benefit of facilitating trade. In between the two Nubian campaigns, he apparently personally led a similar expedition to Canaan, possibly as far as Syria, during his second year on the throne. And it's this campaign that was, at least up until this point, the farthest north any Egyptian ruler had ever ventured. Inscriptions in Egypt claim that he crossed the Euphrates and erected a stele on the opposite bank. But this monument has never been found. Before dismissing it outright, though, please note that he did claim that the river flowed upstream when it ought to be flowing downstream. And when you consider that the Nile flows from south to north, and the Euphrates north to south, the upstream comet makes more sense. And the concept stuck as the name assigned to the river, at least in Egyptian, was inverted water. It was during this campaign that some Syrian princes declared their allegiance to Thutmose. Before he would return to Egypt, and while still in Syria, he celebrated his victories with an elephant hunt in the area of Nia, near Apamea. This ancient city is near the Syrian coast. And as for the elephants, there are currently no native elephants anywhere near there. In our modern world, there are three distinct elephant species. Two of them, the African bush elephant 
and the forest elephant lives south of the Sahara Desert. The Asian elephant lives in Southeast Asia, naturally. All of these are thousands of miles and kilometers from Syria. So a quick little sidebar about these beasts, the ones that may have been hunted in Syria at that time. In BC times, there was a species of elephant that ranged in a swath that ran through what is today Iran, Iraq, and Syria. It was, at least before it went extinct, which was around 1000 BC, the westernmost population of the Asian elephant. These beasts were prevalent enough that ancient Syrian craftsmen used the tusk for ivory carvings. In Syria, production of ivory items reached its peak during the first millennium BC. The Arameans used ivory inlay for furniture. But as it is far too common, overhunting of Syrian elephants for ivory ultimately resulted in their extinction. And let's put some of this in a historic, biblical context. There were elephants in the region when Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David, and their contemporaries walked in the same region. These Syrian elephants were known to exceed 12 feet, or over 3.5 meters in height, making them larger than their closest still-living relatives, the Indian elephant subspecies. Middle Eastern elephants are frequently mentioned in Greek history. The Seleucid kings, who ruled Syria during the period, used these elephants in warfare. But then again, some believe that the war elephants may have been Indian elephants which were acquired by the Seleucid kings during their eastern expansions. They may have been imported due to the scarcity of the native Syrian elephants, or possibly due to their domestication along with better training. Hannibal, the second century Carthaginian general, had a war elephant named Surus, which is thought to translate to the Syrian. Cato, the 2nd century BC Roman senator and historian, claimed that this specific beast was Hannibal's largest and best elephant. So, given its size, it may have been a native Syrian elephant. Who knows? And with that, back to Thutmose. After Thutmose left Canaan for home, with the Egyptians out of sight but still in mind, the Syrian princes changed their minds stopped paying tributes, and redirected their resources to their own fortifications to prevent further Egyptian invasions. And remember, these were the same people that the Israelites would face after their 40 years of desert wanderings, which would begin about 50 years after Thutmose's departure. So, in rough math, about a century later. In his fourth year, the Nubians rebelled, and he had had enough. He began many projects that will quell almost any significant Nubian thought of independence for the next 500 years. The most significant of these was creating an administrative position known as a Turi, who would serve as his designated governor of Kush, the other name for Nubia. And with the civilian governor acting on behalf of the pharaoh, the Nubians walked a fine line. Thutmose domestically would build many temples in Egypt, with the greatest probably being the Temple of Karnak, with courtyards, many obelisks, statues, columns, overall a gigantic building project. The actual construction began during the Middle Kingdom and lasted through the Ptolemaic period, but the current form began to take shape during Thutmose's reign. 
There were also major projects at Abdios, Armant, and Memphis, along with smaller projects in Nubia, Biuin, and throughout the empire. He followed the example of his predecessor, building his tomb outside of Thebes, in the Valley of the Kings. But when his tomb was finally uncovered, his mummy was missing. The tomb also shows damage consistent with having flooded many times over the past couple of millennia. His mummy was ultimately found in a chamber above the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut, rediscovered in 1881. In this temple, Thutmose was interred along with other 18th and 19th dynasty leaders including Amenhotep I, Thutmose II and III, Ramses I, II and IX, and several others. I'll get to this temple in a few minutes. His mummy had apparently been relocated several times before ending up there, with at least two different sarcophagi in the Valley of the Kings that bear his name. But to be clear, the mummy in question was not labeled. Instead, researchers think they've identified it through its resemblance to the mummies of Thutmose II and III, his direct descendants. Also supporting the identification are the embalming techniques which are the same as those in use when he died. An examination of the mummy reveals that he was already advanced in age at the time of his death, probably over 50 years old. This age is determined by the condition of his incisor teeth, which were worn and potentially corroded by impurities thought to be present in Egyptian bread from the period. His body was small and emaciated, but he did show evidence of unusual muscular strength, he was bald, and his features were refined. One researcher noted that his mouth still bore an expression of shrewdness and cunning. And that last bit seems to be someone seeing what they want to see. But, not everyone agrees that this previously unidentified body is his. In 2007, Dr. Zahi Hawass, an Egyptian archaeologist, proposed that this mummy was instead that of a 30-year-old man who had died as a result of an arrow wound to the chest. We may never know. As for his mortuary temple, to date, it has not been found. Maybe because it was incorporated into or demolished during the construction of Hatshepsut's mortuary temple. Hatshepsut was the queen of his successor and an extremely important leader in her own right. I'll get to why she was so important later in this episode. Thutmose I was succeeded by his son, Thutmose II, who took the helm in 1493 BC. And before going forward, the actual date of his, along with his father and essentially most rulers from the period, are in dispute due to differences in dating systems. A bit on that. Most of the dates, especially from this era in Egyptian history, are noted in reference to the rising of stars, star clusters, and galaxies along the horizon. For example, in Amenhotep I's ninth year, the heliatic rise of the Sirius constellation was observed on the ninth day of the third month of summer. But, we don't know from which city this observation was made. Modern astronomers have calculated that, if the observation were made from Memphis or Heliopolis, which are the two likely candidate cities. Such an observation could only have been made on that day in 1537 BC. 
If the observation were made in Thebes, however, it could only have taken place in 1517 BC. Thebes is generally assumed to be correct, since it was the capital during the early 18th dynasty. So with that, Amenhotep I is usually given an ascension date in 1526 BC. But the same event could have occurred in 1546, hence the confusion. For the sake of consistency, and to avoid confusion, I'll just go with the generally recognized date. But do know that you may see the other date elsewhere. So, using this dating system, Thutmose II is thought to have taken the throne in 1493 BC. Like I said, Thutmose II was the son of Thutmose I, but his mother was one of his father's minor wives, so in order to secure his claim to the throne, he married his half-sister, Hatshepsut. She was the daughter of Thutmose I's primary wife, and therefore considered more royal, at least in terms of bloodlines, than her husband, the pharaoh. Yes, the pharaoh's wife was more royal than he himself. And you thought the electoral college system was a strange way to choose a leader. Some researchers believe that Queen Hepsetsut was the real ruling power during Number Two's reign because of the similar domestic and farm policies that were in effect when she was the supreme ruler. Wait, what? Yes, upon the death of her husband, the queen would take over, at least in this case. But I'm getting ahead of myself. More on her in a few minutes. As for Thutmose II, he reigned for somewhere between 3 and 13 years, and if you go with a 3-year rule length, it was a relatively minor stint. There are few monuments in Stele that mention him, which is circumstantial evidence of a shorter reign. Also, the absence of a funerary temple and the lack of any major works undertaken by this pharaoh lend credence to an unusually short reign. Also, he was potentially a minor when he took the throne. Despite this, or potentially arguing against it, is that he still managed to have at least two children, one of which, Thutmose III, which would eventually become Pharaoh himself. And number three, like his father, number two, his mother was a lesser wife. But number two did do a few things in this period. Very early in his reign, Cush rebelled, and it's around this time that we see an emerging pattern. When a new king was installed, Nubia would rebel, as it had a habit of doing, upon the transition of Egyptian kingship. The Nubian state had been completely subdued by his father. But a few rebels from within rose up, causing the Egyptian colonists to retreat into a fortress built by his father. Thutmose II sent troops to Nubia, and seems to have easily crushed this revolt, with the army having been led by what were essentially his father's generals. Josephus would refer to this as the Ethiopic War. There was also a rebellion in Canaan, which was also quickly quelled. Additionally, he defeated a group of nomadic Bedouins, but unlike his father, he did not lead these military expeditions himself, instead dispatching trusted generals. This may have been because he was not yet an adult when he ruled. A minor, minor pharaoh. During his short reign, he built a few small monuments and nothing of real significance. 
His mummy was found among the many others previously listed in a large cache uncovered in 1881. His appearance was very similar to his father, but he did appear badly diseased. I'll spare you the gory details, but his disfigurement is worthy of a quick sidebar. Thutmose II is one of the more popular contenders for the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Alfred Edersheim, a 19th century Jewish turned Christian biblical historian, suggested that Thutmose II is the most likely king who would have been the Pharaoh in Exodus for two distinct reasons. First, he had a brief and prosperous reign, followed by a sudden collapse with no son, at least from his royal wife, to succeed him. His widow, Queen Hepshepsut, would then first become regent, then Pharaoh in her own right. Second, Edersheim believed that Thutmose's mummy was the only royal mummy to display cyst, and this could possibly be evidence of a plague that spread through the Egyptian and Hittite empires at that time, certainly worth considering. Now, it's also noteworthy that, as far as can be determined, Thutmose number two and his primary wife only had a daughter, Nifra, at least according to records uncovered so far. After Hepshepsut bore his daughter, apparently the queen could have no more children. A secondary wife did bear a son, Thutmose III, who would become his successor. But I need to clarify something before moving on. When Thutmose number two died, his son, number three, was only about two years old. Obviously, the toddler king was in need of a regent. In stepped his stepmother, who was his father's primary wife, Queen Hatshepsut. She would rule from this regency post for the first 22 years of his reign, so well into his adulthood. So, while he was his father's official successor, I need to cover Queen Hatshepsut first. With the early and untimely death of her husband Thutmose II, his wife, who was also his half-sister, Queen Hatshepsut, would become regent for her stepson. And since she was her father's, Thutmose I's only surviving child from his marriage to his primary wife, Queen Hatshepsut would claim that she was indeed her father's intended heir. During her father's reign, she held the powerful office of God's wife. She had taken a strong role as a queen to her husband, and was well experienced in the administration of her kingdom by the time she became pharaoh. So, her claim to the throne was based a bit on her experience. But, there's no solid proof that this was indeed her father's intent. She would later, meaning after a few years acting as regent, have herself crowned pharaoh. And this was not merely symbolic. In several inscriptions, the queen's agents replaced the boy king's name with her own. She was the second historically confirmed female pharaoh the first one being Sobekneferu of the Middle Kingdom's 12th dynasty. Like I mentioned when I covered Sobekneferu, there were probably other earlier women who ruled as regent pharaoh, but those have been lost to the passage of time. Hepsetsu took the throne in 1478 BC. Officially, she ruled jointly with Thutmose III. And as a note, women of that time in Egyptian society, in general, had a relatively high status and enjoyed the legal right to own, inherit, or will property. But they did not become pharaoh, 
at least not frequently. She is largely regarded by Egyptologists as one of the most successful pharaohs, reigning longer than any other woman of an indigenous Egyptian dynasty, which is a phrase meant to rule out the Hyksos. Her regard is so great that many, including 20th century American archaeologist James Henry Bristed, consider her to be, in his words, the first great woman in history of whom we are informed. And in this sense, informed simply means recorded in the historic record. So, why is she so highly regarded? First, trade with other countries was re-established, again. These trade networks were interrupted when the Hyksos were in town, during the Second Intermediate Period. In her ninth year, Queen Hatshepsut provided funding for a trade mission to the land of Punt. Five ships, each measuring about 70 feet or 21 meters long, powered by multiple cells and each holding about 210 men, of which at least 30 were rowers, for when the wind died. When they returned, they brought many items, including frankincense and myrrh. And not just the oil, they also brought back 31 live myrrh trees, their root balls having been sustained in baskets for the entire trip. It's believed this was the first recorded attempt to transport foreign trees in world history. The queen had the trees planted in the courtyards of her mortuary temple. As for the frankincense, she would grind the charred frankincense into eyeliner. This mentioned is the first recorded use in history of frankincense resin. And we know it wouldn't be the last. It's believed that the expedition encountered the Putian royal family due to their depiction in Egyptian drawings. After the return of the expedition to Punt, the queen sent raiding expeditions to Byblos and Sinai. Unfortunately, very little is known about these. It's also possible that she directed military campaigns against Nubia and Canaan, but there is little direct evidence of this, too. Despite these potential raids and military expeditions, her reign is considered generally peaceful. Like her predecessors, she continued the Egyptian tradition of massive building projects. She had her mortuary temple built in the Valley of the Kings, and the size and perfect symmetry of the site cannot be understated. It's a cavernous underground temple cut into the rock cliffs on the eastern side of the Nile. This temple consists of three layered terraces, each about 100 feet or 30 meters long and each level is supported by many columns. The main axis of the temple is aligned with the winter solstice sunrise. On this day, sunlight penetrates through the rear wall of the chapel before moving to the right to highlight one of the Osiris statues that stand on either side of the doorway to the second chamber. Another subtlety is that on this day of the year, a block of sunlight slowly moves from the central axis of the temple to first illuminate their deity Amon-Ra, and then shines on the kneeling figure of Thutmose III, followed by lighting up the Nile deity Happy. Due to the heightened angle of the sun, around 41 days before and after the solstice, sunlight is able to penetrate, via a secondary light box, the innermost chamber. The temple also contains a diatribe condemning the Hyksos, 
The gist of it is that the Queen blamed the Canaanite immigrants for a cultural decline that persisted until a revival brought about by her policies and innovations. It's safe to say she really didn't like them. She also commissioned hundreds of construction projects throughout both Upper and Lower Egypt. It's thought that her buildings were grander and more numerous than those of any leader from the Middle Kingdom. These projects were so extensive that later pharaohs attempted to claim some of her projects as their own, which had to make for some really awkward conversations, almost of a Monty Python-esque nature, but with deadly serious consequences. Queen Hatshepsut had monuments constructed at the Temple of Karnak. She had twin obelisks, at the time the tallest in the world, erected at the entrance to the temple. One still stands at 97 feet, or just under 30 meters. It's the tallest surviving ancient obelisk on Earth. The other one was toppled and broken into two pieces. Later, the queen ordered the construction of two more obelisks to celebrate her 16th year as pharaoh. One of the obelisks broke during construction, and a third was constructed to replace it. The broken obelisk was left at the coring site in Aswan, where it remains to this day. It's known as the unfinished obelisk, quite original. But it does demonstrate how obelisks were quarried. Her building projects were of such a scale that the world wouldn't see anything even close for another 1,000 or so years, when the Greeks would construct their buildings and monuments. Historians had previously thought that she served only as regent between Thutmose III's 7th and 21st years of rule, but modern scholars take a different bent, that she was actually the pharaoh for about 21 years. This is based on Manetho, Josephus, and Julius Africanus's writings. Julius Africanus was a 2nd century AD Christian traveler and historian. It's unclear if he was from the Levant, Libya, or was a Roman. Hepsetsut's reign is assumed to have ended before Thutmose III's 22nd year, when he was recorded as having led a military campaign. As for how she died, well, if the identification of her mummy is correct, then she suffered from diabetes and died from bone cancer, which had spread throughout her body while she was in her 50s. The cancer was potentially caused by a carcinogenic skin lotion found in her tomb. She also suffered from arthritis and problematic teeth. But hey, they didn't know of the need to brush twice daily. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the transition to her successor, Thutmose III, along with his potential feelings for his stepmother, co-regent, and predecessor, all rolled into one. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you're helping others to find the podcast. And for those of you that haven't, seriously, you need to get to it. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast, as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.